Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Adoptions from the Heart. My name is Amanda Aliberti. I'm a social worker here at the agency and we are really excited to welcome both Carly and Angela. They are adoptees who were placed transracially for adoption and they're really here to just share their experience. So welcome ladies. Thanks for having us. Yes. <laughs> And again, we are um, excited that we have the capability of Zoom with our lovely uh, COVID. <laughs> We're all safe and able to still communicate, which is, which is great. So if we could start by each of you giving a general overview, introducing who you are, the race that you identify with, and a little bit about your adoption journey. So we will start with you, Carly. For sure. So my name is Carly and um, I'm 24 years old now. And uh, I was adopted at birth, so from the hospital. Um, and so, you know, the family that I have is the family that I know and that I love. Um, and so it's been a full, my, my whole life, this adoption story has kind of just been, you know, what I know and, and what's close to me. Um, and so I was adopted by um, two white parents. And then I also have two siblings that are both adopted as well. My younger brother is my half sibling. So he's the only person I know that's blood related to me. And then my older sister was adopted as well. Um, and then I am African-American and my younger brother is, um, he is half Hispanic and half African-American. And then my older sister is Hispanic. So we have a blending pot of people, but um, yeah, I think that that kind of makes it exciting for us in a way. Wonderful. Thank you. And how about you, Angela? Uh, yeah, my name is Angela Tucker. I am about a decade older than Carly. <laughs> I was adopted from a closed adoption or into a closed adoption from foster care into um, also a very racially mixed family. I have seven siblings. My parents adopted six of them, all different races and all but one from foster care. One was a a refugee from Laos fleeing the civil war. Um, but I grew up not knowing anything about my birth family just by the nature of closed adoption and found my birth family uh, about eight years ago, I think now. And that was all chronicled through a documentary called Closure where I find my birth parents, including my birth father who had no idea that I was alive and that was very exciting. Um, I work as an adoption professional. I, I run my own firm, consulting firm called The Adopted Life where I do a lot of mentorship of adoptees and education to social workers and, and anyone in the child welfare field. And I also am the director of a post-adoption program at a foster care agency in Seattle. Um, I grew up, I identify as black I grew up in a predominantly white space, um, was adopted from the South in Tennessee to the very corner of the Pacific Northwest um, up near Canada. So the racial population of the city that I grew up in was less than 2% black. Um, so grew up really familiar with microaggressions, tokenism, and also had a really loving family, uh, wonderful parents. Um, so I love to work in my education, that activism is primarily around amplifying adoptee stories to help everybody understand that adoptees can love their adoptive parents and still hunger for more information about their roots. 
Wonderful. Thank you. Carly, do you also want to touch on um, any level of openness you've ever had with your birth family? Yeah, for sure. So um, in a similar situation, my adoption was closed as well. So um, I don't, I have not had any contact with my birth parents at all. Um, I have recently reached out via letter. Um, I didn't receive anything back. So I, I don't know much information about my birth family. Um, and I've never seen them, obviously. So yeah, it's very closed off. Um, I've been interested. I would really like to maybe one day be able to meet them in some kind of way, or at least to have some kind of communication. But so far that hasn't happened. But once I got older, that desire kind of has started to come up more. So I'm kind of looking into seeing, you know, how that might be possible. Mm -hmm. Well, and I know you're both very connected to the adoption world and do a lot of advocacy work. Um, I'm curious because as you probably have seen, open adoption is much more common today than it was years ago. Um, when you hear stories, especially positive stories of open adoption, does that force you guys to rethink about your own adoption stories and histories? And um, do you have any regret of not having an open relationship at some level with your biological family? I can start. I certainly don't feel regret because I don't, I know that the closed nature was out of my control. It was also out of my parents' control. And it wasn't even my birth mother's decision that the social work practices in that time stated basically that an adoptee will be too confused to know both parties. And so we think closed adoption is the best. That at that time, they were just going off of what they felt like was healthiest for us. Um, now that we know better, now that we have research that adoptees really aren't, um, that we are capable of, of knowing multiple people as our family and that it actually increases our overall well-being. And we know from the American Academy of Pediatrics, they put out a study that said one in four adoptees who seek therapy attempt suicide. And that study um, has some, there. It's, it's not an, a direct correlation, but there's some evidence to show that the less that adoptees know about themselves, the harder it is for their kind of mental health stability. So now that we know openness is healthier, I am working really hard, including was just published in a journal to, for a new practice model for social workers to encourage adoptive families to have openness. And in that model, I basically state that every single adoption can and should be open. Even those that are unsafe, where birth parents are deceased, that openness is really about the spirit that an adoptive parent brings into their home in feeling comfortable talking about one's birth parents. That that alone is openness, that, that physical contact isn't the definition of openness. You can have no physical contact and still be really open. And so in that sense, I did grow up with a little bit of openness in the sense that my parents were really open about all that they knew, which wasn't very much, but none of that was hidden from me, which I think is uh, has really helped in my adoptee identity, uh, even though I didn't know my birth folks for too long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How about for you, Carly? Yeah, I mean, I, I think those are all just really, really good points of what you mentioned about the fact that you can have, you. we still have the space to be able to know 
both sides in a way, you know, it's, it's not um, something that we're incapable of doing like it, it, that is possible to do. And in a lot of ways, very healthy to have. And yeah. so that it's a very, very good point. I haven't really thought of it that way before, but you know, I, I definitely, I, I don't, there have been moments obviously that I've gone back and I'm like, man, like it would really be nice to be able to hear from them. Or you start to take it on yourself as, your, your mind starts to play tricks on you and you feel like, well, they want nothing to do with me. So I guess like, you know, right off the bat, they wanted to be cut off from me. Like there has to be a reason, you know? And obviously um, I, I wasn't given a lot, a ton of information as to why this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, why the adoption itself even happened, let alone why it was chosen to be closed um, or who made that decision. I, I'm, I'm not really aware of that. At 24, I'm still like, I really am not so sure. Um, so of course there have been moments where I'm like, I wish I had more answers at least. It's almost like that connection is like what could catapult me into so many answers that, that I've always wondered about. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I don't, I don't look back with regret as well because I also do understand that times were different then and that circumstances might've been different. Um, and that maybe it was thought of as, you know, th- this is what's best right now. This is what's going to work best at this time. So, you know, I, I don't look back on that and regret that. Um, do I sometimes long for that connection? Absolutely. I think it would be great to know the people that I, I came from physically, you know, like with my, my biological makeup and everything like that. I would love to see a picture or something, you know, that that would be really, really cool. Um, yeah, I, I would like that. But, but I, I don't think that overall I have... Um, you know, the mindset of looking back in regret. I'm still very, very thankful. And the family that I, I know and love that raised me is so special to me. So, you know, just weighing out those two things for sure. But yeah, I think one area that openness was modeled to me within my closed adoption is that my parents would say things like, I wonder where your athleticism comes from. I wonder where your huge smile comes from. And those things were signals to me that they that that they longed also to know about my roots, um, and that they it was an acknowledgement that I came from somewhere, not from them. And that alone gave permission for me to to wonder and to be curious. Um, I, I don't think that, like Carly mentioned, I don't feel regret because she feels thankful for her family. I do think those two things are completely separate and that adoptees often have a lot of pressure to say, we're really thankful for the family we have, which can be true, but it has nothing to do with the circumstances that led us into this family, that they're completely separate. So. Um, in addition to both Carly and I saying, you know, we don't feel regret over something that we had no control over. I think it is a, for me, what has catapulted me into um, kind of activism and working really hard in this space is the understanding, the growing understanding of the oppression of birth parents. So it's not just that social workers thought that this might be the best approach for adoptees, but it's also that birth parents have very little rights. And that has been really frustrating. And again, it's not a space of regret, nor is it a space for me to say I'm thankful for what I did have, but it's a space of, I want to be involved in ensuring that adopt, that birth parents ha- also get their needs met because birth parents' mental health is also really 
um, difficult. I don't have any studies that I can cite around that, but I do know that it's common for birth parents to also experience this kind of ambiguous loss, like a loss of something that is still alive, someone who is still alive, but they don't have access to. Ambiguous loss is a really dangerous thing because essentially it's it's a loss that society doesn't recognize as a loss. So for birth parents, it's almost as though their child is dead when they get placed to adopt in adoption and they can't have access to them, but the rest of the world is saying like, oh, they're probably in a better place. And yeah. so where do birth parents go with those feelings? That's something that's really damaging in the long run too. For me now being in relationship with my birth mother who has grown after she gave birth to me, she lived with that, that loss of me, but that shame of feeling like, I guess she's in a better place. That makes it really hard for us to have a relationship now, mm -hmm. um, which I think could have been mitigated by openness. Yeah, yeah, wow, absolutely. Carly, I'm curious, just being that you just attended one of our monthly support groups for birth mothers. Um, Angela, just so you know, Carly came to one of the birth parent support groups that we hold here at the agency, and she was able to kind of guest speak and share her experience as an adoptee with other birth mothers. I'm curious if you have anything to put into that discussion, having had that discussion and hearing what the birth mothers go through in terms of the loss and, and what they face in their experience with the adoption. Yeah, that was honestly, I think that was a really powerful moment for me because, um, you know, each of us as individuals, we're living a life out of our own lens. Like we see out of our own two eyes every day. We, we think with our own brains and we have our own hearts and our own souls. And so for me, I've seen my whole adoption process through my lens because that's what I know. It's, it's how I was raised. Um, and that's the position that I was in. And so um, me not having any contact with, with my birth mother personally um, made it so that that aspect, that um, perspective was kind of cut off from me unless I chose to enter into her position and try my best to reverse and put myself in her situation. That was really the only way that I could fully even try to feel an ounce of what she must have felt. Um, and I don't want to also assume how she felt either, but you know, trying to, to make sense of how that must feel. And so sitting in, in that class, in, in that support group was really powerful for me because I didn't know any of these women that I was speaking to. Um, but yet I felt a sense of, I don't know, like sharing in, in their heart and their, their feelings. And um, for some of them, their adoptions were like super recent that, that they had um, had their child to be adopted. And so like, just feeling that and sensing all of that, it was a lot. It was a lot for me to take in, but it was also really good for me to finally hear from that perspective in like such a, a close way. I just felt that, because they, they were asking me questions about my experience, but yet I just wanted to ask them like a million different questions about theirs. Like, I just want to know, like, what is, what is that process like? What, is, what does that feel like for you? And it was, it was amazing. And I, and I was so appreciative that they were so open in sharing, these are my thoughts about it. This is how I felt. And most of them that I spoke to had open adoptions. So they talked about still um, meeting with, with their child and still um, getting to get to know the family, get really close with the family that, that they had specifically chosen for, for their child to be with. And so the, the concept itself, it sounds like mind boggling. Like how do you navigate something like that? 
but they were so open and it, it gave me, it helped me, I think, to further understand my own birth family situation. Even though it might not be identical, it gave me a different physical lens to look through. So it was, it was a really good tool for me to have personally. I really appreciated being there. I was honored to be there. So it was yeah, really I think the to bridge the gap, right? In some of the holes that people might face in their own story. So being able to connect an adoptee with a birth mother is really powerful. So I'm happy you were able to get that from the group. Um, can each of you share a little bit of your experience being a transracial adoptee? I know sometimes in these discussions of transracial adoption, people will question whether or not a child ever feels a sense of not belonging. Um, did either of you ever feel that um, growing up through your childhood or in your young adult life? Did you ever feel a sense of you did not belong? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, growing up with all, I think pretty much all white friends, um, Only in retrospect can I see that I was kind of participating in some sort of forced assimilation sort of experiment. You know, at the time I wanted to fit in and I wanted to, um, I wanted to belong, but I love what Brene Brown says. She says there, she differentiates between fitting in and belonging and uh, fitting in is kind of changing who you are to fit in with who you are around, where belonging is being yourself and being able to be in, that, in a certain situation. Mm -hmm. I do feel like I was trying to fit in through different things like straightening my hair. So it was more like Eurocentric with all my blonde friends because I remember being like in a convertible and their hair would flow in the wind and mine <laughs> would just stick straight up and not do anything. And I was like, oh, I want that. So I might get it straightened. Um, or, uh, you know, there's a lot of ways I think that I felt different. <laughs> I think something that's less spoken of probably is every time we would go to Target, the, the clearance rack would have like these bright pink, bright yellow, all these bright color shirts that nobody wanted. But all my friends would be like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. You're going to get that for 10 bucks. That looks great on your skin color. So to realize like, the stuff for me was always on the clearance rack because it wasn't just the, the khakis for white people. And I simultaneously like liked that, but I, I remember I would never want to buy that right then. I would go back later with my mom and be like, oh, I want this and that and this and that. But at the time with my friends, it's like, oh, I don't like that. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to buy that because it was just so different, unfortunately. Um, when I got into college is when I really recognized what was happening. And I, uh, at that point, you know, I, I describe it as throughout my life having white privilege by osmosis. Basically, people knew that I was adopted by white people. They knew I was in proximity, close proximity to whiteness. And so they're like, she's cool. She's safe. She, we, we can understand why she's here. Once I went to college, it was like, how'd you get here? Like, I don't get it. You're just this black girl that chose like this predominantly white Christian university. What? Doesn't make sense. And that's when I was, even though through my eyes, I was still seeing the same type of population that I'd grown up with. Like there's just a whole bunch of white people all around me. And I was like, this is, this is it. This is what I'm around. But in college is when I was like, okay, wait a minute, you know, and started to seek out 
blackness and that also brought up some feelings of anger and thus fuels some of my advocacy today that families who are transracial need to live in spaces that more reflect the, the races of their kids. Because otherwise, I know too many adult adoptees like myself who had to go out and find that, which is a really unique experience. Um, and one that just felt frustrating and unfair. Um, so that's kind of the long term impacts of being in a racially homogenous area. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, it's honestly crazy. It's crazy to me for, to hear that because our, what you're explaining to me is almost identical right down to the demographics of where I grew up, down to the, the feelings that you felt at Target with the bright neon colors, down to, I didn't figure this out. And I'm still trying to figure this out and navigate this, but I didn't fully start to understand this until college. And I went to a small predominantly white Christian college. And so I, I, again, I knew like I, all, most of my friends were white. I went to a small Christian school for most of my life. So I was growing up with the same 20 kids every year. Like the, the classes were so small. I knew everybody that was there. And I was maybe, maybe one of five or six brown kids at that school. Like that, that's just how it was. So I grew up there. And again, I would get the comments like you are, you're not really black, you're an Oreo, you are black on the outside, white on the inside, you talk white, all those comments, oh, you're so well-spoken, you know, th those kinds of things. And then also being that token brown child that would be in the pamphlets and uh, yeah. I was body yeah. present, did all the things that you could ask me to do, you know. Which, Carly, these aren't just comments, they're all microaggressions, but yes. they're like, sometimes said in kind ways like yeah we want you on the front of our pamphlet because you're so beautiful right. well is it because i'm beautiful right. and like exemplify what you want to show or is it to because i'm being tokenized you know so those microaggressions which can feel like gaslighting because it's like wait it's positive but no it doesn't feel good but and then yeah. you feel weird you're in you're in the middle it, it it was very strange for me and i i again it wasn't until i got to college and when I moved closer towards the Philadelphia region that I understood more and was surrounded by more people even that just looked like me. Like I remember the first time um, I, my hair was a huge insecurity of mine for a long time because like you had mentioned, all my friends had, you know, that straight blonde or brunette hair. And I was bothered sometimes that mine wasn't like that. And I didn't know how to maintain it. I had no, I, I didn't understand how to deal with it. And I remember when I got to college, um, one of the first friends that I made, um, she's Haitian and she had beautiful natural hair. And one night we were in the lounge and I was like, I just love your hair. And she was like, do you want me to do yours for you? And I was like, for real? And she was like, yeah, she showed me how to do a twist out on my hair. And it was at that moment, I was like, man, I've been missing out. I feel like I've missed out on my own things that make me me. And I want to get into that now. And yeah. it was kind of pushed that in me. It was my first, I feel like a real exposure to like, wow, like this is a part of myself that I'm so excited to find. But it was, it helped me too. It was, it was really cool. So it, yeah, it was tough to navigate growing up. And it still is hard for me to try and navigate those things and to understand those things, how, how I carry myself and how sometimes I feel stuck between yeah. two different cultures almost because I'm so proud of who I am and, and my roots 
but I sometimes feel like, am I too much of one? Am I too not enough of the other? Like it's a, it's a weird position to be stuck in sometimes to navigate. Which is a lot of like the mentorship work that I do. I hear so many transracial adoptees and myself included that feel like we're straddling two cultures mm-hmm. and feel that that is um, an antonym to our, our sense of identity in one. When in reality, I've met so many black folks who aren't adopted, who also struggle with feeling like not fully black. And if we go back in history and we think about what blackness is cultivated upon, it makes sense that blackness is, is, a, is a concept that many black folks have a hard time grasping. It is not a monolith, but it's really easy for especially transracial adoptees who grew up in white spaces to feel like blackness equals that one thing and I am not that. It's only through meeting more black folks that I've started to learn like, oh, actually like, these black people who were raised in blackness, they also straightened their hair to try to look like the European standards and they weren't surrounded by all white people. So it's like, some things I've learned aren't only solely related to my transracial adoptee upbringing, but are more just a factor of being black in America, which is really complex and people do feel like they are split. Um, of course, it's accentuated for those who grew up outside of the Black community, but it, it has been interesting to see how that's actually more of a universal Black experience. Yeah. Well, ladies, we only have a few more minutes left, unfortunately. This is such a powerful discussion. I want to keep going, um, but but because of time, I'm just curious if based off of everything you're, you're saying, what would be your biggest piece of advice to a family, a white family particularly, who is possibly contemplating adoption transracially? And in turn, sorry, this is a two-part question. What do you feel like is still not well understood within the adoption community in terms of adoptees and transracial adoptees? So sorry, I'm throwing two questions at you, but I'm trying to get both. <laughs> I, I, I think that, you know, in, in terms of advice um, that I could give you know, from my standpoint, I think that my family did a very good job. And as Angela had kind of mentioned as well, did a very good job of having um, open um, conversation about what adoption is, about where I've come from, as much as they were able to let me know, um, as much as they were knowledgeable about. So, you know, for me, I would definitely say some advice would be, you know, keeping that a conversation, don't let that conversation die. Um, because it might feel weird at first, or you might start to think like, d- d- I, if I if I talk about this too much, will then my child start to feel disconnected from me, or am I hold- withholding something from them that they need? You know, there's a lot of things to navigate, and that might fit into the question of what are some things that might not be understood. There's a lot of emotions that come with it, but I really do feel like having that open conversation is such a good start. It's a really really good start. Um, for, for me personally to, to gain my confidence, um, for me to understand where I came from, but also understand how much love I'm also surrounded by here. Um, and that love was shown by having open conversation, um, being able to, my, my family actually sent my birth family Christmas cards every year, you know, just having that, it's, it's, it's beneficial for sure. So just being willing to have those open conversations because the thing that some people don't understand is 
from my point of view, I still struggle um, mentally sometimes with, you know, my identity and questioning where I came from, or even physically, just with even things like medically, some medical conditions that I might have that I, I don't know who they were passed from. I can't quite pinpoint why things going on with my body. I, I, I can't pinpoint those things. And so the mysteries that come with it can be pretty detrimental um, mentally and physically. So, you know, I think just being open and honest about those kinds of conversations and anticipating, understanding that those will be a factor, not shying away from it or getting scared by that, but understanding like these are the factors that come with it. But because we chose this, you know, we, we want to fight through that and work hard at this and understand and listen. So yeah, just those would be some of the, the main things that I've learned for, from my own personal experience that I would give. Um, advice for prospective transracial adoptive parents is that uh, cannot be cultural neglectful, culturally neglectful. And that means that if you don't, if you're not in, in relationship with people of color, then you're not ready to adopt a kid of color. End of story. You cannot do it. That would be culturally neglectful, which is harmful. Um, in terms of what we still need to hear, uh, this is a lot of my work is amplifying adoptee voices, allowing adoptees to tell their truth, speak their truth without being muted or without them being labeled angry, um, that their truth is valid and real. And so a lot of my work is, is amplifying adoptive voices all the way into um, media, that media needs to be more accurately representing adoptees and the, the multiplex of our identities and that they are all valid and real and true. Um, that only once we really ex listen will some of the harms that are done through adoption be able to be amended. For sure. Are amazing. <laughs> we, we have to continue these discussions again. It was, it was an honor truly to have you both on here. I know um, oftentimes the adoptee voice is not heard. And I think the fact that you're able to um, continue to share your experience, you guys are open and courageous enough to do that. We're very thankful and appreciative for. So thank you both. Um, and hopefully we'll see you again soon.